All right. So Tyler and Drew uh, for our show, Infinite Games, we're back and we experimented with a format before of Bullish and Bearish, where we choose a grab bag of topics and we discuss the pros, the cons, whether we're bullish or bearish on the future of these ideas. So this is a follow up on that episode format. Uh, yeah. Before we jump into topics, uh, you have anything you'd like to add, Tyler? No, that sounds good. I, uh, we'll see how many of these we have time for. Maybe like uh, probably cover two or three of them. Yeah, that sounds good. And the Great. first one, I believe that you brought this up a few weeks ago, which is around part-time only work environments or contractor only work environments. And you pointed to companies like Maybe, which is a relatively new company around personal finance. And I believe you also pointed to Gumroad, where Sahil has shared a lot of the thinking inside of Gumroad and how he thinks about just this idea, this uh, this organizational organizational structure of part-time only work. Uh, yeah, so bullish, bearish. I do have some like nuance to add around this. I saw Sahil at Founder Summit and he talked about the reversal around his decision and his position on part-time only work environments where he specifically pointed to finding engineers where he said that we work just as hard as any other company to recruit engineers, but by allowing them or expecting them to only work part-time and actually penalizing them if they work more than, I forgot what the threshold was, 20 yeah, or 30 like 20 hours. hours, something like that. Yeah, there's a cliff where you actually get paid less the longer you work. Not that he's clawing money back, but that those hours that you put in, you don't receive that same rate. The rate actually starts to drop as you put additional hours in for this block of time. Uh, but the reason why he reversed on that was because he said that they work just as hard as any other company th to recruit engineers and they get less out of them. Mm. Uh, so that was just an interesting take that that was, I think, an unintended consequence where he's a very smart guy, but just as humans, we have limited ability to see around corners <laughs> and like understand systems. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many different pieces to this. And I, I'm going to be like very bearish on the core part, which is it's not just part time and it's not just contractors, but it's the idea. I think there's an aspect of this that founders are not interested in management. And so they think you can like shortcut cheat it a little bit by saying, well, I don't have to be a manager if everyone's a contractor. Um, that's the thing I'm extremely bearish about. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But I think there's a lot of other stuff around here that I'm more bullish on, like part-time work in general. First of all, I think a lot of people, so like a typical, like a, a good engineer can make 200,000 a year or more. You can easily live in most parts of the world off 100,000 a year. There are a lot of people who would rather just work 20 hours. It's not like 20 hours a week and then they have a different 20 hour a week job. They're just I'm just going to work half time and have a lot more time for other stuff. That's great. I love more flexibility in that. We're actually at Less Knowing CRM trying to very gradually shift more towards four days being the norm instead of five. We have a couple employees already doing that. So I love that. Um, and I definitely like the model of the more you work, the less you get paid per hour. So it doesn't encourage, it's like, doesn't encourage this type of burnout type working. So anyway, I like all that. But that's not really what this is about, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I think one thing, and this is something we haven't explicitly talked about, but I think I feel a little differently than you do on the sort of like amount of time that can be spent on management or that a team needs to be managed. 
Another thing that uh, we talked about at Founder Summit where uh, Sahil had like a panel with Natalie from Wildbit. And Natalie and Wildbit, they're really big on like a people first company where thinking about what's the quality of life for the stakeholders of this company and keeping that high. And uh, at some point, Sahil shared a lot about like how Gumroad works and sort of uh, it was like a kind of a wisecrack, but he was like, yeah, this is a Sahil first company where <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like this is set up. Like I, I don't want to live in this reality. So we're just not going to do that. Right. Um, so he like set things up where he's able to manage Gumroad in a fairly decentralized way from like 30 to 90 minutes a day on average. They have like longer planning meetings, but most of the things he like kicks to like product people like Daniel Vasallo or his head of marketing, things like that. So I would just, there may be other examples and there are also like companies, like I think about Stripe where Patrick Collison can spend countless hours a day like reading, but he has a COO. Uh, but I would sort of like question reality in terms of what's the, how far can we push this thing of allowing people to have sustainable systems and like organize themselves in a way where they don't have to be directly managed. DAOs keep sure. coming to mind. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's frame the conversation around that. I think that's a fairly noble goal, sometimes realistic, sometimes unrealistic, but noble nonetheless to say, if you don't want to spend all day managing people, figure out a way to build a company where you don't have to spend all day managing people. I think that's fair enough. But I guess part of my concern here is I don't think there's anything different about a contractor versus a full-time W-2 type employee. At the end of the day, they're a person. And this is, I'm not saying this necessarily about Sahil or uh, Josh Pigford, the founder of maybe specifically, but like when you read the comments on all of their posts, because you know these, these posts go get very popular, you see a lot of people who are like, this is the dream. I want to be a hacker. I want to run a company. It's going to have thousands of employees and no one's, there's going to, it's going to be flat and there's going to be no management. It's just like, I think that's unrealistic. You can, you can structure it however you want. People are people. And like communication is important. Giving people tasks is important. This is what in Josh's post about maybe where the, the context here is he originally only hired contractors. And basically my understanding is he said, here's, here's all the work that needs to get done. Just take whatever you want and go do it. And it just didn't work. It doesn't work because people need context, right? They need like, there's, <laughs> it takes at Less Annoying CRM, it takes months to onboard a new developer to get fully productive. Even someone who's very experienced already, you can't just be like, here's a project in a code base you've never seen before. An hour of your time is equally valuable to an hour of someone's time who's who's been here uh, and doing it for a long time. I don't know. I, people just aren't robots like that. Yeah, we talked about Sahil's reversal on this position, at least as it applies to engineers. It's also interesting. I checked out a content strategist role and a community manager role from maybe as well. And both of those looking at the salary, looking at uh, forced four weeks of vacation benefits, they also seem like full-time roles. So over hmm. like two references, for some reason, uh, they've each reversed on this position. So I feel like hmm. that's telling. Yeah. That's interesting, but but what's interesting is Gumroad is still a really unorthodox company in terms of I, I think in terms of even if they're working closer to full time hours, it is I think it's close to what you described with your team. Like there's a lot more autonomy. Uh, you don't expect it to be like a traditional top down management like like approach. Is is that am I right that that's what you're doing? Yeah, and also to go back to Gumroad, uh, I just thought about this when you talked about the months to onboard a developer where. He explicitly said, like, look, I'm going to give you access to the GitHub repo. They put a lot of effort into like documentation and writing. And it's like, okay, you're in support, you're a developer, get started. 
go <laughs> about it. And I'm not saying that's the best way to do best way to do it, but it just depends. We can't necessarily judge failure or success until we understand someone's like priorities and their goals. Uh, and it seems to work for Sahil with the exception of the uh, engineering engineers that he was working with. Yeah. Do you know how big Gumroad is? Roughly? I, I get the impression. Roughly, like I would say, yeah, roughly, I would, oh, no, I, roughly, I would say like 30 to 50 people. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot But I do than think I there's something there, and that's something that even before I started to think about this thing with Gumroad and maybe his references, that sort of like a, a mammal, like the bigger the mass of the body, like the more bones you need, the more structure you mm. need, the more layers of management. You talked about this in the previous episode. That you need, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That you need to manage this big group of people, and we also well, talked about that dynamic with Founder Summit. Of the larger it grows, maybe the more bones, i.e., structure that it needs to have this like seamless experience. Yeah, as much as we like to shit on big companies for being bureaucratic nightmares, and in many ways they are, in ways that are avoidable. But like, there's a reason they all do some of the same stuff. Um, yep. I've found this at Less Knowing Serum a lot, where when we were five or 10 people, we not only did we do things differently, but I kind of smugly was like, what? why do big companies get this wrong? And now, I want to be clear, we're only at 20 people. It's not like we're a massive Fortune 500 company. We're at 20 people, and I'm already like, okay, a lot of that stuff that I thought I was being innovative about, it worked at five or 10, and it doesn't work at 20. Mm. So a rule of thumb that I've lived by probably since 2016 or 2017 think this came from the founder of Evernote, where he says that uh, everything changes or breaks at increments of one and three. So you go from one Hmm. person to three people to 10 people to 30. And like any rule of thumb, it's flawed, but it's something I've never forgotten. And I use it to actually gamify life a lot of times. Interesting. Yeah, that that holds up pretty well, I think. Although, yeah, I've in my experience, I think like 10... 10 to 20, there's definitely been at least one of these these phase shifts. But the the one I've heard is that actually has like sociology research behind it is that like human tribes yeah. break down around 30 to 50, uh, where that's the most fundamental inflection point that any organization hits. So I haven't gotten to that point, so I can't say that with experience, but that's what I'm kind of seeing in the future where I'm like, if you're saying I don't want to get above a certain point, to me, it's either don't go above 30 or maybe 40, whatever the exact number mm-hmm. is. Or if you do, go to 10,000. Like I, th- I think I buy the argument that at that point, you're, you have to run like a big organization at that point. Yeah, yeah. It was Jason Calacanis. This had to be a year and a half ago where he was talking about the difference of running a team before 20 and after 20 people. And he's like, I don't know what the hell changed. And for me <laughs> and my experience of this like rule of one and three, there's something about seven and 17 in my experience of life. Hmm. And I apply this to habits of if I go seven days or 17 days after doing something, either something clicks of like, look, I'm not going to do this for a hundred or a thousand days, or, Hey, I actually enjoy this habit and I see why I'm doing this and I'll stick it out for a hundred or a thousand days. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So to pull back to the contractor part-time worker thing, I guess like, I'm not sure. Like, w- w- would you say you're bullish or bearish if you had to give like an? I know that's kind of oversimplifying it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay, you've already stated that this is an oversimplification. I would say I'm bullish, but let me qualify that. I'm bullish if, like, like we've established, if the company isn't of a certain size, 
And I also may be the person that like, look, I studied history. I've seen all the failures and I'm still about to like wage a war in Russia in the winter and march into Russia right now. (laughs) 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 But this is how we're set up with like marketing, operations, development, even the analysts that I'm looking at hiring going to be part-time. And I do wonder if this can sustain itself with one, this being a media company, two, uh, saying, look, we're not going to go beyond 10 people, whether this can work. Uh, One concern I do have in this, I don't even know why this concerns me, but it's once you have, you talked about this earlier, support, development, content, these different departments, if you will, Uh It makes me bullish and it makes me bearish. It makes me bullish because if one sort of system works for one or two analysts, it should work for more. Uh, But I guess it's the context switching of I have to put on a different hat when I'm dealing with developers versus analysts. Maybe that gives me some pause. Yeah, I I think they probably need to be managed in pretty different ways. But yeah, okay. So I think we're probably, I'm going to say bearish, but I actually think we're on the same page here, which is, I'm bearish because I think the inspiration behind a lot of this is people wanting to abdicate their responsibility as managers and thinking they can treat people like cogs in a machine. I don't get the impression from you you're doing that at all. You're saying there's a certain lifestyle, there's a certain workflow, it works well with part-time people, but you're still having calls with your people, you're doing management, you've got the entrepreneurial operating system going. As long as you're still treating it like just because they're part-time, just because they're contractors, they're still people and they have all the same messy, squishy people problems that you get with full-timers, I'm fine with it at that point. I just, I don't like the version of this, which is they're cogs in a machine. I can ignore the people problems and just focus on the business. Yeah. I don't think, yeah. Even if your goal is to optimize, to like improve your life as a founder or yeah, I don't think that's going to work out long-term for you or for them. Yeah. Well, you said uh, some people just hire a COO who does it all. Fine. I'm not saying you have to, and I don't mean mm-hmm. you, Drew, but like I'm not yeah, saying yeah. the founder has to do it, but somebody has to do it. If you're going to hire people, somebody has to do that work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. All right. And next up, I should have added this before, but we have uh, token gated slash enabled communities. And in real time, I'm also adding DAOs. So someone asked me earlier today, what is a DAO? I'll give a definition, and this is really a ideal definition. This is not what most of any DAOs are right now, but it's a way for people to independently coordinate. So we usually think about like companies, the bar for a DAO is set much higher because you don't necessarily have the confidence or convenience of the rule of law of saying like, hey, uh, we're going to take you to court for this. So the, the bar of the systems, the level of systems that you need are much uh, tighter in this like DAO world, and it stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And I say that it sort of betrays the name because when you look closer at a lot of these DAOs that you'll hear about on Twitter now, they're rarely as decentralized as we would like for them to be. They're nowhere near being autonomous. We're still figuring a lot of this (laughs) stuff out. There's a lot of like infrastructure lacking. But what I will say about them is that they're, in most cases, they're unstoppable. And this is slightly controversial, but like Bitcoin is a DAO, Ethereum is a DAO. There's a governance system that's at play. There are miners that can employ changes and actually change this decentralized system. Uh, There are other stakeholders who are at the whim of those miners. Uh, 
So this is effectively a DAO and it's unstoppable. It's a headless organization in a lot of ways. But bringing this back down to earth, um, before we had DAOs there, we had token enabled or token gated communities. And I think we may have touched on this in the last bullish or bearish, but the thing that stands out here, I feel like most communities are going this way in the future because there's one thing to say like, hey, we're aligned because all of us are interested in finger painting. There's another thing for us to say, all of us are interested in finger painting and we own a part of this community and movement and meme that we're a part of. And now you're like deeply incentivized, not just on an emotional level, but you want to make this community more valuable. You may even go as far as saying like, hey, uh, if you belong to this finger painting community DAO, then I'll give you a 20% discount for using less annoying CRM. You've added value to this DAO. And I think, yeah, we're seeing more things like this happen. Like um, you can even say like this, these NFT collections that they're DAOs of some sort of like people are saying, hey, if there's a big NFT conference in New York, you can only get into this party if you hold an NFT or whatever. That's a member benefit that adds some type of value to being a member of this community. So that was a long rant, but yeah. <laughs> So you're bullish, it sounds like. <laughs> no, I'm very bearish. This isn't going to work out at all. <laughs> um, I'm more bullish on this than I was. When we talked about NFTs, I was, I was extremely bearish because mm -hmm. even the perfect version of it where it all works, you end up with baseball cards, which I don't care about at all. Um, you just end up with a speculative thing. I, I just am not interested. Whereas with this one, I, I still have some concerns about, is this the right mechanism for it? But I actually... like. Online communities and stuff like that make perfect sense to me. I'm not like, I don't question why is anyone interested in this in the same way. So let me, let me throw some concerns I have though. Not these, unlike NFTs, this is not me saying this can't work, this won't work. This is me saying I don't yet understand. I haven't connected the dots here. Okay. So one thing is, uh, do you read Matt Levine or Levine's uh, column on it's he's a Bloomberg writer, but he has a newsletter. It's like my favorite newsletter. It's a, uh, I don't know, something about money, whatever money stuff. Yeah, I, I heard about called. him from you and from one other person on a podcast a few months ago, but no, he's first of all, just a very entertaining writer. I, I like you wouldn't think reading about Wall Street is something you'd laugh out loud at multiple times, but I, it is. But anyway, he had a really interesting way of framing crypto stuff that I thought was interesting, which is basically like, because he, he was talking about in the context of this uh, like Bitcoin ETF that came out, which is kind of bullshit. Like it's not real. It doesn't hold any real Bitcoin. But he's basically like the challenge here is if if the, the life you're living is on the blockchain, if the things you want to buy are on the blockchain, the, the things you want to do are Bitcoin is what you want because, or or some cryptocurrency is what you want because you can buy the thing directly and there are all these rules that can apply and all that. If you want to buy a thing in the real world or the, the old school world, however you want to think about it, you want US dollars or something like that. Um, and the challenge is like converting between one or the other and that it, it really doesn't make sense so much to buy an NFT with US dollars or to buy a yacht with Bitcoin right now. Um, you could do it, but a lot of the rules in crypto can only be enforced in the crypto world, right? So this is one of my concerns with these DAOs is like, it seems possible to me that in the future, enough stuff will live in the Web3 world that everything is in it. And in that case, I totally get it. The the governance rules, because for people who don't follow this, like my understanding is basically whoever makes makes up the DAO can kind of define 
it's almost like shareholders voting at a company. It's like if you have this many tokens, you can you know vote in this various ways and you can impose rules and those rules apply to how things can be sold and how access is granted. That makes sense to me if the thing you're buying is on the blockchain. And it makes very little sense to me right now where the thing you're buying is access to a Discord group or something along those lines. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I'm going to, this is connected, I promise. And just double check with me if you want me to like draw the explicit <laughs> connection. I forgot who said this. You mentioned Matt. Someone else talked about, it may have been Heat and Shaw or someone, but the fact that for a while, and I think a lot of people are still in this state where we are obsessed with, okay, crypto is here. What can it replace? And we're just looking at this like analog or Web2 world where it's like things are relatively okay. There's nothing big wrong with this. And they said we should be more concerned with, okay, what new form factors are possible now that we have this thing instead of trying to replace Uber or Airbnb? Could mm -hmm. we? Sure. Would it be a better experience? Would it be a better system? Probably not. But what also wasn't possible before is this idea of saying like, hey, we're just going to spin up like every NFT collection, meaning like these generic like 10K projects. It's a community. These are people that are emotionally, financially bought into this idea, into this meme. And that didn't exist before. Not in a way you could say like, okay, we all own this game. We've never really owned a game. You never really owned in-game items. You're tight. You've never really owned your Twitter profile. You've never really owned your Facebook profile. So that's what we talk about when like this is a new form factor. What's also new is like the property of like this asset that it's sovereign. If you have real estate and someone invaded the US or the US wanted to do uh, was it eminent domain and said like, hey, we need to take this house so we can build something. They can do that. They can't do that with this new asset class. A nation state, an individual, a group of people can't do that unless they have your private key. Let me, let me just I might push back on that, but okay, go ahead. That's fine. That's fine. So yeah, it's all of these new properties, all of these new possibilities that are being unlocked. And if we replace nation states' uh, ability to like print money and disrupt people's confidence in that money, sure, fine. That was the like first major use case. But I, I guess the point that was made and that I agree with is that the things in the web to a previous world that we interrupt or replace, that's going to happen less often than we actually just create new form factors that weren't possible before. Yeah, I I like that in theory. I, I think that there's a serious lack of storytelling in the crypto world, the web three world of like what those things will be. Um, or at least I'm not like a community around people with pictures of lions is obviously to me, obviously bullshit. Like that is not a thing you form a community about, that you all own a picture of a lion, in my opinion. That's not like exciting. Anyway, sorry, that was a little bit of a rant. Uh <laughs> no, I think what's interesting here is it, it's just like I talk to a lot of people that are bullish on DeFi. I think you're bullish on DeFi, you're bullish on cryptocurrency, but you see NFTs as like this game or this joke. And a lot of people who are bullish on DeFi and crypto now, they once thought that was a joke. And I think we're just at that phase now where it's just like, this is the joke phase where everyone like laughs at it and then something else is going to turn and you're going to be yeah. just as bullish on this as you are now on DeFi. Yeah. That's fair. And I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly say I'm bullish on DeFi. I'm probably neutral. I'm like, I don't want to be close-minded to the possibilities, but I'm also not excited about it is kind of where I am. I, and I, I think I said this in our NFT conversation, like I 
acknowledge it is possible there is some exciting application of it in the future. But I'm just like, there's a lot of hype about 10,000 people bought pictures of lions and now there's this tight-knit community about it that I just don't buy at all. But let me go back to something you you said about it's uh, like the sovereignness, sovereignty, whatever. Mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, so like this is kind of what I was, th- the point I was making with if the thing that you're buying is itself in the crypto world where like literally you can't access it without the key, then that's fair. Like no one can take it from you. The government can always come and use the threat of violence to, they can or either kill you, can do it. another government could, yes. Yeah. Uh, they could either kill you or uh, you give it to them basically. But if you say, well, fine, kill me, then maybe they can't get access to it. That's that's fair. But a lot of the things we're seeing, and this is the Discord uh example I was giving. Like if you buy a token into a community, or let's put it this way, if um you're using NFT, you're selling an NFT each week or however often every time you put a report out, that gives someone access to tr- trends VC pro member for life. But that thing lives on web two, not web three. And the government could absolutely come and what like, like specifically lives on well you're hosted on circle.ci or so yeah, yeah, whatever for now for now yeah uh so like if the if web3 actually were what people say it is would say it will be and it it becomes like everything's i don't i'll admit i i don't know enough about it to even know what this means but everything's hosted on it and all of that then fine but like right now people are using web3 stuff to buy access to physical old school world stuff and it doesn't actually have that protect. The government can still come take it every bit as much as they ever could. Like if, if I sold someone and like uh, used a Web3 crypto type contract to say, you can buy my house from me. They don't actually have my house. This goes, you know? <laughs> to, this goes to the Ubers and the Airbnbs, right? So I, I think the crypto community is split on this. I'm part of the group that's moving forward. So we're not talking about physical real estate Will it replace or disrupt? Probably, but it's more interesting, like looking at, okay, what form factors does it unlock? Can they take your house from you in the metaverse? No. Can they take your Bitcoin from you? No. Can they take your ether away from you? No. So this is more so thinking about like, oh, we're going to use Web3 to disrupt Airbnb or Uber. It's like, let's forget about them for now. We've disrupted currencies. The clock is just ticking. We just have to wait for this narrative to play out. Nobody wants to talk about that. But let's more so focus on like what things weren't possible before that are now possible instead of trying to replace what was already sort of working in the Web2 yeah. world. And I think the house is an example of that. Okay. So I'm going to final answer here, slight bearish on token-gated communities and DAOs because I have not been told a very compelling story. I actually am long-term bullish in that or like very, very mildly bullish that I think cool stuff will come along. But the fact that I I 100% agree with you, it's about what new stuff can exist. I want better storytellers to convince me there's exciting stuff there. And I I haven't gotten that yet. So do I. And then in the meantime, I'm investing until the narrative catches up with reality. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. All right. All right. This next one is around... uh, it says private equity uh, and product quality, but since I added this, I'll sort of give like a brief rundown where a pattern I've seen, and I think we've done three reports on micro private equity, 
And each time it gets more meta of like, okay, we've covered the basis. We understand the basic level of what this is, but let's take it further and further and further. And one pattern I've seen is that a lot of micro private equity companies, it feels like they're just acquiring revenue streams. And once they acquire a company, the product gets worse, they milk it out and they can still objectively succeed if their objective is like a return on investment. They can get a positive return on investment, uh, but they, I wouldn't say run the products into the ground, but they do it via neglect. They're not necessarily thinking about how do I improve this experience? How do I improve this product? It's, this is a financial instrument that we bought. How do we keep it running? How do we make this to talk about narratives, financial narrative come true based on the bet that we placed that we can get some type of payback out of this asset. Yeah. And you said micro private equity. I think you could say that exact same thing about old school, you know, Bain type private equity as well. If it applies to the micro, it applies to the macro. I agree. Yeah. So what's the question here? Are we, are we bullish or bearish on private equity? This is more so like agree, disagree, I guess, because (laughs) it's, it it feels like it's happening. We agree that it's happening. If we disagreed on whether it was happening, then maybe it's bullish or bearish, but this is more so like agree or disagree. It sounds like we agree, yeah. but do you have any other like angles or examples that come to mind? Yes. Um, okay. This is going to be like a real tangent and I think I can connect it, but we'll see. Okay. Um, whenever we hire people, especially like interns who are you know younger and don't like have a very mature sense of the world yet. Uh, one of the things I try to explain to them is like they as you know, a lot of younger people, college-educated people are very uh, disillusioned with systems right now. And they're, if I say, like, true or false, a lot of big companies are evil, they'll be like, true. Every single time, strong agree. But then if I'm like, why? It gets a little more, like, explanations get harder. And and it, the thing I often explain to them is I say this, like, okay, you've met everyone at Less Knowing CRM. Do you think we're evil? No, you don't seem evil. Okay, what do I do with my money? I take it and I put it in like mutual funds or whatever. Uh, do you, and then I have to explain what mutual funds are because young people don't know that. And then I have, and then I'm like, okay, so they're investing. Some fund manager is investing that money in other companies, and if they do enough of it, they get to sit on the board or have a vote or whatever. And then the board appoints the CEO. And basically, like, I'm not going to invest in mutual funds. I actually invest in index funds to be clear, but like, whatever. Imagine mm-hmm. I'm slightly different and invest in like actively managed mutual funds. You like higher fees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm not going to invest in one that's choosing companies that are doing poorly, right? That's pretty obvious. So like the fund managers have to force the board of directors to force the CEO to make money. And then the CEO of Wells Fargo is like, hey, we need to open more accounts. And then some random sales rep at Wells Fargo starts forging accounts uh, for customers. If you, you know, that's, that reference is a few years out of date now, but some random non-evil person at Wells Fargo did this thing due to all these incentives, which started with me investing in a mutual fund. Um, and you explain this, and I don't really in the when I'm talking to the interns, I don't have a conclusion here. I'm just like it's it's we're doomed. I don't know what to say. Yeah, yeah. So I have I want to piggyback off of that, and I'm not sure where this goes, but it takes me to this thing I've been thinking about recently. Is is surrounding ecology of just thinking about the ecology of business and life. There's a niche to fill. Like someone has to acquire, I say has to, no one has to do anything, but acquire these companies if the founder no longer wants to run them, or perhaps they're being run in like a capital inefficient manner. They're leaving money on the table, whatever the hell that means. So someone's Mm going to buy them. And when I say ecology of business and life, I mean that there's a 
opportunity to exploit that's like tinged language that I just chose, someone's going to do it. Right. And it's just, this is like an amoral thing in the same way in nature that like, look, if there's some unexploited niche for like a leaf that isn't being consumed, that's edible, some organism is going <laughs> to evolve to consume that leaf and then they're going to support mm-hmm. some other part of the ecological ecosystem, blah, blah, blah. So saying all of that makes me feel like I'm just like a crybaby and like talking about this because <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to happen. Uh, but maybe I guess if we sort of back up and think about like more than just like complaining, like the action item here could be around as a founder, sort of bringing your expectations closer to reality of understanding that if you look deeper at an industry or reputation of a particular firm, understanding what might happen to this company if you care about the people or care about the product that you're building and Mm -hmm. possibly make better decisions because you have a better gauge of reality if you understand this, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So so let's connect this to the, the private equity thing at the beginning. Like what I was getting at and what you're saying correctly, I think, is reality is anytime you have an organization that is trying to represent the returns of its shareholders, we can all wring our hands and say, oh, they're unethical or this or that. But this is this is the system, whether you like it or not. This is the system. And with enough shareholders, you asked when we were talking about small giants, you asked a question, which is, did I think you could be a small giant if you were acquired by a publicly traded company? I think is, the, mm-hmm. and I said no. If you have enough shareholders, there's no way to be anything other than a profit maximizing organization. I think, or shareholder value maximizing, I should say. Yeah, I'm not in my head because the fact that I'm like clawing for exceptions proves your point. <laughs> yeah, may, and maybe there are one or two. Even if you find one, it's like, oh, Patagonia or Ben and Jerry's. But I don't know. Didn't Ben and Jerry's get like acquired by Johnson and Johnson or something like that? Yeah, Patagonia Um, may be a co-op. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think they are. Although I also think a lot of co-ops are, they're like co-ops the way the Green Bay Packers are. Like it's, it's kind of bogus, but they say they are, you know? Um, Yeah, I I know who is. REI. REI is a co-op. Yeah, yeah. I attended a webinar about co-ops because I'm like, background interested in maybe doing that with Lesterman Serum. And they used REI as an example. Everybody started laughing. They were like, what a joke. They're not actually a co-op. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so I think to your point about acknowledging reality, there's two options. You maintain a very small group of shareholders who make the decision not to be, uh, not to maximize shareholder value, or you you turn it over to someone else and, ma- and shareholder value gets maximized. I, I don't see any middle ground here personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, climb for exceptions. Like I'll just walk you through uh sort of like my mental narrative there was like uh like maybe product studio of like, hey, we only focus on this corner of SaaS or this specific like customer segment. So like we have a voice, we have a like stance on how things should be done. So with confidence you could sell your product to us. And if you agree with our five, 10, 15 year roadmap about how we handle things. Maybe you consider selling to us, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah. So and I don't think it, you meant like when you said no middle ground, like in the terms of like absolutes, but yeah. Yeah. But even in that world, you probably still have 
you're transferring it from one shareholder, one or a small group of shareholders to a different small group of shareholders, but you still need a group of people who have agreed to do that. And like, I think once you have like, it's a publicly traded company or it's a private equity firm, it's too many, too many stakeholders at that point to really expect that. Now you, you could like write in governance rules or you could put poison pills in operating agreements to basically make it so this can't be run in that way uh, legally. But yeah, I, I don't know of any examples of that. Yeah, and I tend to think about the types of stakeholders more than like the absolute number of them. So if you have, I'm not sure like what would be the like cliche, like stereotype of REI customers, but if they all have the same set of concerns and in theory, you could have 10,000 or 50,000 of those people. But if you have a set of investors with a different set of concerns and priorities, I think the problems start to arise because I think mm-hmm. that's where the majority of the misalignment is. Yeah, there may be small agreements within the group of investors within in terms of, hey, I think that this move has a higher EV than this move or this group of REI customers. I think this is the way you save the environment, not this way. But we start to get into like priority conversations of should we prioritize profits over climate? You know, then, yeah. then the real fighting begins. Yeah. And there are efforts for this right now. There's B Corps, benefit corporations, where it basically is, I, I personally think it's a pretty toothless designation. Like, I think these companies are still behaving the way every other company is. But they basically are saying, we have permission not to maximize shareholder value, and shareholders don't get to sue us if, or actually, I might be confused. There's B Corps, and then there's there's two very similar sounding things. One of them is basically, our shareholders don't get to sue us if we do something because we thought it would be unethical uh, or whatever. And then there's also these ESG, environmental, social uh, uh, governance, is that what they are? Uh, investment funds now where you can invest in like a mutual fund that says we're only going to invest in other companies that, you know, ascribe to certain values. But I mean, we're talking about shaving a fraction of a percent off the returns and shaving a fraction of a percent off the pollution. It's not, I don't think it's fundamentally changing shareholder capitalism. Yeah. Okay. So we live in, um, for anyone interested in cryptocurrency, which we talked about in a previous episode, check out the Sailor series. He has a saying that we live in the wild, not the zoo. And yeah, we live in the wild, not the zoo. Hmm. Okay. Closing thought here. I'm going to give one slight, not positive about private equity, but a, a trick that I use just in case anyone else wants it. I regularly do the thought experiment. If a private equity fund bought less annoying CRM, what would they do to it? And this is helpful for two reasons. One, you might get some good ideas out of it. Like they're evil and I'm not going to do all the stuff they're going to do, but maybe they actually, maybe like be your own therapist here. What would your therapist say? Why are you avoiding that? Why aren't you doing that? Um, So I, I often go through there and for every single thing they would do, either you should do it or you'd better have a good explanation for why you won't. What's I the think first thing exercise. that comes to mind when you do that thought exercise for less annoying, annoying CRM? Either the first thing or like the first thing or the biggest opportunity of like, ah, oh, that's actually a good idea. We just haven't executed on it yet. I mean, the, the main thing is customer service is too expensive for us. So they would probably, a number of things all wrapped into that. They would lay people off. They would, uh, you know, stop doing phone support. They'd probably start charging for premium support, which is we just give to everyone right now. A lot of stuff in that department. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's I'll easy for me to say why I wouldn't do it. Yeah. What, do, do you have any, I realize you haven't done, done this experiment before, but what do you, yeah, you think I the same answer? Like two bullet points down when you said that they would probably add sponsorships and they may even cut the community out because I think that masterminds, which isn't like a visible part of, you talked about circle earlier, like that isn't dependent on circle at all. But I think that's where most of the impact comes from in terms of the value of trends VC. But it also has a big scaling problem where we another decision consciously in a sort of an anti scale decision is to say, like, we're going to have a max of six members per group. That's done very consciously for good reasons, but it goes back to priorities. Right. Yeah. The PE people will have a different set of priorities. And I think just to tie this all off, that's a perfect example of like that would ruin the product or it, it would it would hurt the product. Right. If, if they came in, that might in the short term and even medium term be good for revenue, but it, I, that's not what you want to be doing. That's not your vision for what trends is, right? Yep, exactly. All right, that wraps up this episode. As always, please feel free to send us your feedback if you've got any thoughts on uh, the podcast. And otherwise, we'll see you next time. Bye.